fellow members of the Royal Irish Academy, ladies and gentlemen, and I am delighted to be here uh, today. I am grateful to Professor Shannon for extending the invitation on behalf of the Academy. I'm also grateful to Professor Cecilia Holland for agreeing to take on the job of responding to my remarks. Uh, when one's work is subject to appraisal uh, by a brilliant scientist and brilliant lecturer such as Professor Holland, well, it's a matter of considerable apprehension. <laughs> but I press on, hopefully. I also take this opportunity to profess to, to, sorry, to thank Ms. Clark and her colleagues for arranging this event uh, with such talent and such patience. I am going to talk a bit about the tropical disease river blindness and a bit about the drug that's been used to control it. And I'll talk a bit about our failure as I see it to have learned an important lesson from the history of drug discovery. And finally, I find that no matter what the topic is, I have to end with at least a glimpse of the fairy tale week in Stockholm, recognizing, of course, that I may not be the only person in this room who has had that experience, but they're all a bit different. I also must say that parts of this talk will be shamelessly autobiographical. And that is perhaps inevitable. I find that if you live a very long time, that people rather expect you to talk about your past. They know you don't have a future. <laughs> and I have an excuse for showing this first slide of my hometown, Remelton in County Donegal, because it was while living there as a teenager that I first learned of the existence of parasitic worms. And uh, also, I learned then that there could be such a thing as a treatment to rid an animal of its parasitic worms. And that made a great impression on me. It didn't change my life, but my life was changed at Trinity College Dublin uh, by the mentorship of Professor Desmond Smith. And that is something unforgettable. Among other things I learned is the basic grouping of parasitic worms into three main cat categories. The flukes, or trematodes, the cestodes, or tapeworms, and the roundworms. And I'm just going to remind us all that those three groups exist, but I'm not going to do it by showing uh, diagrams from textbooks. You can find those in textbooks, but rather I'm going to do it a different way because I find that if I just am so interested in parasitic worms and have been ever since my Trinity days that nowadays, uh, well, if I write a poem, it often turns out to be a paras about parasitic worms. <laughs> and if I paint a picture, it invariably turns out to be about parasitic worms. So instead of you showing you uh, the diagrams from the textbook, I'm just going to show you those three groups um, as I like to picture them. In real life, they don't have any color, and I, I pity them because of that deficiency, and I try to make up for it by providing color and other um, ideas that 
uh, are entirely imaginative. So this is the flukes then, and on the left you can see a, a rose window with an infective stage, which some of, I know some of the students here will recognize as the infective stage, and the flukes are arranged all around it. And the, the stonework up in the upper uh, left turns into ripley effect on the right and becomes water because snails live in the water and transmit this particular parasite and other flukes as well. And then there are other flukes on the right. And tapeworms I especially like to paint because of their diversity. Their morphological diversity, to me they're like flowers. And I like to not only give them color, but to imagine them doing things that they don't normally do. Um, and in fact, um, I uh, so much enjoy tapeworms that I've even got two slides of them because they're different techniques. And most of these are tapeworms of sharks. Sharks are a great source of exotic uh, tapeworms. And then these are the nematodes, which are, are more wiggly uh, in the sense that we usually think of worms. And it's about a nematode that I want to talk this evening, and about the particular nematode or roundworm, Onchocerca volvulus, which is transmitted from person to person by a small black fly. And this occurs in Africa and Yemen and in South and Central America, and it's commonly known as river blindness. And there's a reason for that, but on the other hand, it's important to know that it's not just a cause of blindness. It also causes very serious skin disease. And uh, most people who have the disease for a long time develop a skin disease, and a certain percentage of them will become blind. But the first thing that happens is that one get, well, first let me say that on the left, uh, upper left, you see a person with bulges on either side in the pelvic area. And those, bul those bulges are where there's a nodule underneath the skin, and in the nodule there are adult worms. And there may be two or three worms in it, and they're very long and thin. The adult may be a foot or a foot and a half long, the male somewhat shorter, and they live there as adult worms. And they produce pro progeny. They don't lay eggs, they produce eggs inside their body, the female body, but they release live larvae, baby worms called microfilarii, and those are produced by those adult worms and escape from the capsule into the skin and they migrate in the skin, all over the body. Not on the skin, not under the skin, but in the skin. And they just migrate. And the thing is that the female produces these by the thousands every day. And these worms live 15, 16 years. So the skin is subjected to a tremendous insult over many years. But after about half a year, you have this rash that you see here in this boy on the upper right. Uh, it's immaculate uh, papular, it's spotty with pustules. Um, and I'm trying to follow instructions and, and make this for a generous group, so I'm not going to use uh, technical uh, expressions if I can avoid it. But th in this case, you can see this, the striations there, which are not caused by the parasite. That's simply this boy scratching himself because it's a horrendous itch. So the itching alone, if there was nothing else, itching alone would make this a very, very significant uh, disruption of everyday life. And so that's uh, what happens first, but then this goes on for years and years, 
and so the skin loses its elasticity. And you see in the lower right that the presence of these microfilaria being released into the skin for years and years causes this condition here, uh, which is known as presbyteremia. Uh, instantly understandable to Presbyterians. It, it means uh, elder skin. Um, and uh, it's simply uh, the skin of an elder. And here are two elders, uh, village elders, not uh, church elders, that I met in West Africa in the country of Togo. And the man in, on the left, apart from being blind, if he was asked to raise the hem of his garment, you could see this condition popularly known as leopard skin. It's a very, very abrupt depigmentation of the skin. Uh, it's, it's very characteristic of this disease. Other diseases have less abrupt uh, depigmentation. And then it goes on in other years to have even more uh, horrendous and appalling uh, skin disfiguration. Now, that's so much for the disease, but for the treatment, um, the American Institute where I worked was interested in treatment of parasitic diseases, especially worm diseases, not only worm diseases, also protozoan diseases, but worm diseases had been an interest for a long time, and we, meaning the people at Merck, had developed a number of antimintics, that is, anti-worm drugs. Um, and so we had a sort of an established interest in it. But uh, the time came when we wanted something not just a little different or a little better, but something radically different uh, and hopefully much better. And so for that, we thought we should turn to microorganisms as a source of novel substances. Bacteriologists have been doing that for decades, ever since penicillin, but worm people had not been doing it. And there was a methodological impasse. You, know, you can work with bacteria and petri dishes in the lab. With worms, you just can't do that. So uh, worm people had been looking for drugs from other sources, but not turning to microbes. And microbes in the soil is a very fertile source of novel compounds. So we decided to go that way because in our department of parasitology, my colleagues found a way to do that. As I say, that had not been done because it just wasn't easy to do. One couldn't see how, how to do it. So um, the method is published. I won't go into it. Um, it's available. But they found a way to get around the methodological problems. And so uh, we started getting microbes from all over the world. So when I mean microbes, we get isolated microbes which you grow up in culture and you allow them to, to uh, multiply profusely in nutrient liquids and so you get what, a fermentation broth. And that's what we were testing, fermentation broths from all over the world. And <clears throat> this shows at the bottom some of the sources. We got a lot from Spain where we had a, a group that was doing that specifically for us. And we got a lot, of also, a lot from the Kitasato Institute in Japan, where they had a lot of expertise in this area. And one of the cultures that proved to be of interest was, in fact, from the Kitasato Institute, sent to us by Professor Satoshi Omura, whose picture you see, and who shared the Nobel Prize, because one of his cultures turned out to be really pay dirt. 
I mean, it was from the soil, but it was pay dirt in an unusual sense. Here you see a picture of that culture when it was grown. Our bacteriologist described it as a new species, gave it a new name. Uh, it looks a bit like a mold. It's actually a filamentous bacterium. Here you see a colony growing on an agar plate. And it produced an extraordinarily potent substance, potent in the sense that it would kill worm parasites. It would kill worm parasites in mice, for example, even if given to the mice in the diet at a concentration of 0.0003%. I mean, this got our attention. This was more potent in this crude condition than the most refined anti-worm anti agent then known. And so my boss and I uh, called this when our chemists uh, worked out the structure. Uh, we called it avermectin. It has eight very closely related compounds. This happens to be avermectin B1A. And my friends in chemistry concede that microbes can make structures that a human chemist simply cannot conceive. Chemists would not make such a thing. However, my friends in chemistry also take the view that only a chemist can make it right. And so they immediately start tinkering with the molecule. They, they tweak it this way, they tweak it that way, and they make all kinds of varieties of it looking to improve it. And that's what, that's what they do, and that's what they did. And so uh, they made it, and the chemist among you will probably spot right away the difference, the one on the lower right has been hydrogenated, uh, so that is 22-23-dihydroavermectin B1A. And the chemists uh, having done this, and uh, the, those of us who are biologists having in fact discovered that it's even better than avermectin, um, the chemists decided that since they got it by adding hydrogen to the molecule, they would call it hivermectin. But someone in our company pointed out that in some language, hiver means testicle. Uh, so that's how hivermectin became ivermectin. <laughs> and it became a really blockbuster agent for controlling parasitic diseases in domestic animals. And that is a very, very big thing, which I'm not going to talk about. Um, the question that I had as we were doing tests of this substance against various kinds of worms that are many, many different groups, many different uh, uh, orders and classes and species, genera. And so as we were accumulating all this data, uh, it seemed to me that there was a potential that this stuff would be active in river blindness. I had been interested in the human side of it, and I, I taught human parasitology at New York Medical College for 25 years, a lot of that overlapping when my day job was at, at Merck. Um, and so I was interested, I had also been in the, in the tropics and uh, visited labs and hospitals. So I, I knew which parasitic diseases had a reasonably good treatment, which ones had no treatment, which ones had good treatment. And so it seemed to me that there was a real potential that this could fill a need in river blindness. So I went to my boss, who had never heard of river blindness, naturally he wasn't a parasitologist. But starting with him and then going up the ladder, there's a question of telling people about river blindness and telling them why 
this stuff, ivermectin, might actually work, and if it did work, that that would be a big deal. And everybody was very receptive. But putting this into humans is not a trivial matter. Uh, putting anything new drug in is, is a challenge. But this, this molecule is so different from any molecule used in any area of medicine, veterinary medicine or human medicine, that that really was something that one didn't undertake lightly. But on the other hand, you just couldn't not take that step. And so a very, very cautious trial was done in West Africa, um, directed by <coughs> my colleague, the medical director, Dr. Mohamed Aziz, working in collaboration with Professor Larivier from uh, Paris. And they had contacts in Dakar and Senegal. And so they set up a trial with their African colleagues and found that, in fact, ivermectin would kill those baby worms migrating in the, larva, in the skin. It would not kill the adult worms, but it would kill those baby worms migrating in the skin. And those, after all, are the ones that cause the skin disease and that cause blindness when they get into the eye. So that was, it seemed to us very promising. There were some world-leading experts who didn't see uh, that that, in fact, was a valuable contribution. They were very skeptical. Uh, and so to me, uh, this is not the time to talk about the specifics, but I think there's a lesson here that all of us who have expertise in some area are likely to be reluctant um, to accept something that is counter to our expertise and our experience. And so here we had a classic example of people expert in river blindness who said, you know, you had to have something active against the adult worm first of all, and secondly, if you had it active only against the migrating baby worms, that that was sure to be dangerous and toxic and so on. And they had good reasons for all of this. However, we persisted. Um, initially, we couldn't get people to sort of collaborate, but of course, as things went along, uh, people did collaborate. But this, um, I had a chance to go into villages such as this. Uh, this was one I was in again in Togo. Uh, some very remote villages, and the drug was at that time known to be not only active but to be safe enough to be given on a community basis. And that in itself was just wonderful. And so I was there in this uh, village and other villages, and this expanded as things looked better and better. Um, this picture on the left is one I took in one of those villages, uh, since it was very early. Detailed records were being kept on, Indian, on every individual. You see a young girl there uh, being weighed on a bathroom scale. Uh, that was a long time ago, and since then there has been a technical advance, which is shown uh, by a picture which I did not take, but is on the right, because it turns out that you can have a great uh, increase in efficiency and cost uh, by replacing the bathroom scale with a long board. And that, that piece of wood is not graduated in grams or inches or in anything it's like that. It's graduated in pills. And you can see that this individual now being measured uh, is qualified to get the maximum number of pills, which is three. And these are, are very small pills and easily taken by mouth. 
and I'm not going to dwell on that, but if you just think for a moment how wonderful and unbelievable that was, that it didn't have to be given by injection for five days or something like that, would have been, would have been totally different. Um, but it can be given by mouth, small pills, easily taken, safe enough to be given on a community basis. Just far, far better than any of us ever expected. So sometimes things just go right. Um, I used to show a bar graph of showing increasing numbers of uh, donations of treatment over the years, in the hundreds and thousands, and then in uh, millions and so on. Um, I've long since lost interest in those because now you can look at the big picture because here we have in the Americas, um, four out of the six countries that have the disease or had the disease, four of them have eliminated the disease. And it's not just somebody's opinion, these are certified. Uh, after much uh, work and, and a three-year waiting period before you get certified and so on. So the disease is eliminated. I mean, if an old person has it, that's different. If, you, if your eyes are destroyed, um, you don't get them restored with ivermectin. On the other hand, if you treat young people uh, just once a year and continue to giving them each year through the school system, they will never develop the skin disease and never develop the blindness. And, and transmission then will stop because the black flies that are biting individuals will not be picking up the infection because those baby worms are not migrating in these people. So the life cycle just collapses. Um, and it's almost eliminated in two, but there are remote tribes in the border between Brazil and Venezuela where it's not yet uh, completely eliminated. And in Africa, the goal all along was to uh, reduce it as a major public health problem. I mean, that's the best people expected. I just, in the continent of Africa, I mean, you just don't, certainly I would never have thought of elimination or eradication. That, that would have been spooky to, to, to use such words even. It just uh, is sort of out of the realm of the expected. Here in Africa now, the, the goal is officially changed. They, they've raised their sights. The goal now is to eliminate it from Africa and they have a target of 2025. Some people think it, should, uh, it can happen even sooner than that. So that is a, an amazing thing. Now, um, it's also used in, to prevent river blindness, but not to cure river blindness. But annual treatment with young people will prevent blindness totally and prevent skin disease. But it's also used, as had been mentioned uh, earlier, uh, in lymphatic filariasis. Uh, and in strondyloiditis and scabies. These are all very important diseases of humans caused by roundworm parasites. Now, I want to talk a bit about medication and drug discovery. <clears throat> and there's a reason why I used the word finding medication in the title rather than discovering medication. In the field of infectious diseases, we are at the present bewitched, bothered, and bewildered by drug resistance. And I'm sure you all know, and this is not just in the parasitic infections, but in bacterial infections of people. We have a crisis of drug resistance. Our antibiotics and other antimicrobials are just not as effective as they used to be. So the question arises, why are we not continuing to develop new antibiotics, new antimicrobials of all categories? 
Is it because discovering a new drug is so hard? No, it's because it is so easy. We insist on trying to do it the hard way because we think it's intellectually disreputable to do it the easy way, which is empirically trial and error, to do it by trial and error testing, and to be blunt, random screening. And that is not considered high science. But we have history to guide us. Our existing anti-infective agents, and I'm only talking about infectious diseases here, they were discovered empirically. They were discovered by observation or by trial and error, but it's one way or another, it was empirically. And <clears throat> technically speaking, it was simple to discover the ones that we have. Now, I have shown on this slide here the, the, the sort of two parts that we have to keep, I think, separately in mind. One is finding an active substance. And then secondly, is, is making it into a useful medication. And that's the, the pharmaceutical science is creating useful medicines out of something that is active, but may or may not be usable. And of course, in the old days, centuries ago, uh, the drugs were sort of in their natural condition. But now you have to develop uh, useful medications from what you discover. And I would just like for the scholarly-minded people to think of what Celsus said uh, many centuries ago in ancient Rome. Um, and I'll just read this. Medication was not a discovery following upon reason, but after the discovery of the remedy, the reason for it was sought out. Um, so I would argue that that is essentially still true. And technically speaking, it was easy to discover penicillin, not the final version, but the active substance. And it, it, was, it was simple, rather. It's a better word than saying it was easy. It was, it was simple. It was simple to discover ivermectin. It was simple to discover penicillin. It was simple before that to discover the sulfur drugs. It was simple to discover the synchronobark, and so on, all the way back into ancient times. And <clears throat> I mentioned the assay that my colleagues developed in the Department of Parasitology. Uh, that development by my colleagues was an important breakthrough. It, it sort of cut through this impasse. But that assay technically could have been developed a half century earlier, at least, maybe more, but certainly a half century earlier. So you just think of the drugs that might have been discovered uh, during that half century, but we will never know uh, what they would have been. And what was needed was not a technical advance, a technical breakthrough. What was needed was fresh thinking. But we are homo sapiens. We are the hominid that knows a thing or two about a thing or two. And we think that we, if we study our parasites, and if we study our existing drugs, we can use all this knowledge, of which there is a great wealth, we can use that to devise and design a drug that will be useful even against our drug-resistant parasites. And so there have been all along 
uh, attempts the so-called rational approach using a targeted method. You just find a drug target biochemically and then try and find something that acts against that. Now, I think we should go on doing that. In fact, we will go on doing that because it is intellectually irresistible. But in the meantime, we should not continue to turn our backs on history. We should not be embarrassed to be empiricists. We should not be ashamed to do random empirical screening. And this is a problem not only in academia, but in industry. In modern industry, there is a tremendous uh, reluctance to countenance screening. So screening has fallen into dissuade and disrepute. And I think we need to embrace it and do uh, more of it. We, we may not know how to discover new drugs predictably, but we do know how to discover them unpredictably. And there is nothing unscientific about that. Now, back to ivermectin. <laughs> Um, so, the question is that we had, had found this drug that was active um, and reproducibly active and, and tolerated, but if it's a drug for onco, what do you do with it? Uh, this picture is another of the typical uh, iconic scenes in Africa where you have a child leading somebody who's blind, in this case a couple of people, sometimes it's three or four or five people all on the chain, each connected with a stick or holding the clothes of the person in front. Um, so they simply do not have the money to uh, buy a modern medicine. And we would have liked, well, first of all, we would have liked to sell it and make a great profit. That's what companies are supposed to do in the capitalist system. But obviously that was not in the cards. We would have liked to hand it over to an aid agency and let them run with it, but no aid agency was willing or able uh, to do that. Uh, so that didn't leave much alternative but to give it away. Now, this is a picture at the United Nations many years ago uh, when I was talking to three very important people. Next to me on the left is my wife, and I don't have to explain why she is a very important person. <laughs> But then moving toward the right, you see Dr. Roy Vadulus, chairman and CEO of Merck and Company at that time, himself a physician and a distinguished biochemical researcher. And he was the one who made the decision to donate the drug. And he, one should remember, in fact, was the only one who could. There are lots of people who love to tell a big drug company to give something away. Uh, I'm biased, but I find that just too too easy a recommendation to make if you have no accountability and if you don't understand how difficult it is to give a drug away. Uh, and I can't go into the, that would take too long, but it's actually difficult to give a drug away. And in this case, of course, with all those remote villages scattered around Africa and the Americas, uh, it's not a simple thing to do. But so there are people in print that one can read about who, who are credited with being the first ones to propose that the drug is given away and so on. Um, and that's great. I, I don't begrudge them uh, <laughs> proposing it. But I think we need to remember. And so then in the far right, you have former US President Jimmy Carter. Because when he heard about this, he sent his top uh, aide advisor to Merck 
because he'd heard Merck was going to give it away, but he said, well, they'll give it away for a year, and then they'll start charging for it, and so on. So he asked, he sent his man to ask Merck how long they would give it away for, and Merck said forever, and uh, this guy said, well, that sounds like it's long enough. And uh, he reported back to Carter, and Carter has been tremendous with his group in being involved in distributing the drug, and so are other organizations. The formulation used in humans is given the, the name Mechtizan, and Merck set up a donation program, which it is still supporting, uh, which is, of course, uh, a major donation, not only of drug, but of uh, resources and cost <coughs> to keep that. It's made up of a tropical medicine advisors from around the world. And the World Health Organization, very much involved, major player in developing ways to distribute it and uh, so on, and the Carter Center very much involved, and numerous other NGOs, non-governmental organizations, Helen Keller International, Sightsavers, the End Fund, many, many of those. Um, so just a, a word about consequences. Uh, one, I'll just give one example of of a consequence that you might not think about, which is that um, there were many villages where 50% or more of the adults would be blind, and those villages couldn't sustain themselves, they'd be abandoned. Well, the people in those villages knew that this was connected with the river, but that also happens to be the most fertile land next to the rivers. So they would abandon the village, and in this case, it obviously had been a very prosperous village to look at the construction compared to the one I showed previously. Uh, but so they've gone to less fertile land, but now because of ivermectin, they are repopulating the fertile land in huge areas, for reclaiming uh, fertile land. And another thing is that those children who are leading blind people, they should be in school, not walking past school. So those are sort of things. Um, now another sort of... Um, a trivial um, consequence. I'm going into now to some of the fun things, just to, to end with some of the fun things. One, my, my actual personal hands-on bench work, so to speak, was on a disease called dog heartworm disease. Not a problem in this country because it's transmitted by mosquitoes and mosquitoes aren't very happy here. Um, so, but in other parts of the world, it is a huge problem, and because it's dogs, it's also, of course, a very profitable area for veterinary medicine to become active in. So um, I was just set up beautifully. I had just started this research before ivermectin was known to be so, so broadly effective. So I was able to test it and, and discovered that it was not only active against this kind of worm, but it was active in a way that enabled us to devise a once a month preventive treatment, and that has long since become absolutely uh, standard practice and has changed um, canine veterinary medicine. But I show this slide because of another fun consequence, um, which isn't obviously uh, isn't apparent from this picture, but um, this is when my wife and I were entering the uh, Oval Office of President Obama in the White House in Washington, D.C., and he ushered us in, and as we were chatting, he reached into his jacket pocket and he pulled out a present for me. And no, there are other people there that they, nobody else got a present. I haven't even heard of anybody getting a present. A present from the president. And this was it. It's a stuffed animal in the form of a dog heartworm. Um, now, it doesn't actually look very much like a dog heartworm, but it is, and it has a little embroidered red heart on the top. 
And so, needless to say, I, I treasure that uh, stuffed animal. It's my only stuffed animal. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then, um, so then I just want to end a few things of the Stockholm Nobel experience. Uh, a whole week, it's not a day, as I would have guessed if somebody had asked me, um, but a whole week of press conferences and concerts and enormous banquets. And well, some of them are very formal. And from the beginning, my, my, my wife's concern, and I can say this because she's the first to, to say it always, uh, her first concern was what to wear. Um, <laughs> she solved this problem beautifully, I think, but my, I never had that problem because uh, it was dictated exactly what to wear. My problem was how to get into it. <laughs> um, and uh, here is a picture in Stockholm with um, my, uh, my wife and I and Roy Vadulus, who you saw already with his wife, and you can see, I look like I'm all puffed up with pride. This is sort of an embarrassing picture, I'll up, but I show it to you because I want to make the point that this is because of that darn shirt. It's, uh, it's like a steel plate. It's, it's uh, starts so much. Uh, I don't know how it is that Roy Vadulus, he's always ahead of the game, but he happens to be deflated. At, uh, <laughs> Um, and then there are these absolutely incredible banquets uh, you do pr pr process down with the royal family and so on. And then at various intermissions, there's a big orchestra and all kinds of musical intermissions. Um, but then you, each category gets to give a thank you speech. It fell to my lot to give a speech from that uh, top of the staircase there. They set up a podium. So that's, um, that, that's one of the things you don't think about ahead of time. You know, 1,300 people for dinner. and a big high table with the king and queen and so on. Um, very fancy um, dinner. Uh, each laureate and spouse gets to spend some time with the king and queen separately. Uh, my wife and the queen had a very nice chat about when, uh, when the children were expecting grandchildren and that sort of thing. Um, the king and I uh, had a little more trouble making small talk. But uh, nevertheless, it's a pretty special occasion. And here's the actual awards ceremony, finally. Um, so you can see the royal family uh, sitting there and everybody else sitting. And then in this picture, when it was my turn to come up, um, you know, you have to be at that little circle. The people in the audience, of course, don't see that circle on the stage so where you have to stand. And then uh, I had heard as a child uh, with fairy tales that if you're in the presence of a king and you're, and you're leaving the room, you're supposed to walk backwards. Well, in this case, the king walks backwards uh, and then uh, you bow to him, and then you bow this way, that way, and every way. Uh, it's all very choreographed. And then uh, he hands you the stuff in this sort of uh, handshake. Uh, and then afterwards, the, all that audience, which are family and friends, they all come up on stage, great mingling and, and hoopla, uh, and somebody comes and takes this away from you. And I have no recollection of that happening. It could have been anybody. <laughs> but, of course, it was, in fact, the Nobel Foundation. They think of everything. And then at the end of the week, you get it back again. So, um, so I have no sense when I think back and I show this slide of my home con and, and County Donegal, I, I don't have a feeling of of triumphalism or anything, I really don't. I have a feeling of gratitude and a feeling of sheer bewilderment. Thank you. <laughs>